a treat to have kids in here with us this morning. I know that we're typically uh, without our littlest ones in children's worship. And uh, kids, I want to just give you a brief word of encouragement. If you are a four-year-old to third grade and you typically go to children's worship, I want you to know that what we're doing in here is, um, is important. I want you to know that what your parents are hearing matters, and I know that uh, you may have the temptation to feel like you, it's okay to fidget, make a bunch of noise, and it's really not, and I want to encourage you to just try real hard. I'm speaking even to my own kids. Just try real hard to engage these stories. God is telling some stories this morning that are going to reveal what He's like, and it's going to be a time of worship together as we enjoy these pictures and we enjoy the cross and the gospel as a result of that. Parents, if you are worried about the next few minutes because you have a four-year-old sitting next to you, just do the best you can do. We're uh, graceful, forgiving people. And um, although my kids won't make a peep, if yours do, just know that it's okay. I'm being facetious, of course. Let me pray. Lord, I pray for these little ones. I pray for their, their little hearts that they will be awakened and quickened and arrested with the gospel. I pray for adults that may not know you, that may be here today with family or friends, or may be um, searching for you, Lord. I pray that they will be arrested with the gospel this morning. I pray that we all as a people, whether beginning a journey or whether continuing a journey, that we'll be arrested with a sweet, redemptive, delivering, gathering, rescuing, drawing gospel that you've been working out over the ages. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that we will in some way, in the way that we communicate, in the way that we listen, do justice, some justice, to your incredible character. I turn this time over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I feel like, turn, go ahead and turn to John 12. <clears throat> I told Christy last night, I feel like, Sometimes when you go on a trip, like a vacation or something, you've been planning a long time, and you go see it, something really amazing, and you take pictures, you know, the tourists, typical tourists, you've got your, your camera out, and you're taking pictures of everything. I have this feeling, I was trying to figure out what, my, what I was feeling last night, and even kind of what I'm feeling this morning, where you come back from the trip, and you download all those images into your computer, or you send it off to the, the old-fashioned way, you send it off to a processor, and they actually put them on hard copies, and you get them back and you look at them and you go, man, that, that's an okay picture, but it just doesn't capture what I experienced. It just doesn't represent the sunsets and the sunrises and the seascapes and landscapes and horizons that were just remarkable. And I kind of feel like that this morning, that as I'm looking at this sermon that the Lord has prepared, I feel like it's a bunch of Polaroids in contrast to a journey that we've been on, that the Lord and I have been on these last couple of weeks, enjoying the character of Him drawing His people from darkness. And I'm hoping it, my prayer has been, my hope is in these next few minutes that the Lord can do something with some Polaroids. So that even if they just remain Polaroids, that at least they'll equip you to want to load your family up in the station wagon with the wood grain sides on a, on the side of the car where the kids are facing backwards in the back seat and head off and see it. 
that you'll want to load up and go on this trip and go engage this glory, that you'll get enough taste of it this morning. That's my hope and prayer. John chapter 12, verse 44 through 50 is a weird section of Scripture. We don't know who Jesus is talking to, his audience, in other words. We don't know when this happened in the sequence of his ministry, at what point. John places it here, but it's somewhat out of place in terms of how things seem to be unfolding in John chapter 12. And while we don't know who he's speaking to in the audience proper, we know he's speaking to us. And while we may not know the the context, we know that this is important to us, and it's because of the way it starts out in verse 44. It says, Jesus cried out. I want to confess to you that I was planning on just kind of breezing through this section, verses 44 through 50, and then when I realized that Jesus cried out, that we better slow down and dine on it. When I thought about the fact that all it took was a whisper from God for Elijah to cover his face, that when the same God, God the Son, cries out, that the people of God should be attentive. And while it may be very difficult to preach, while it may be very difficult to get our hands around, we better dine and feast on these passages. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Considered a couple weeks ago that to believe on Christ, to see Christ, is not a believing or it's not a temper. It's not a terminal event. We're not believing and seeing simply Him, but we are seeing and believing the indescribable. For Christ describes the indescribable God. He explains the inexplicable. He reveals the invisible God. He is the singular market explanation of a white-hot holy God that we could not observe and live, but now we can, in fact, walk with and enjoy through the pages of this Bible, through the stories that really happened, through the ministry of Christ. Last week, we considered also that believing is beholding. I was thinking as I was kind of making these notes, preparing for this morning, I was thinking, you know, if, if my kids asked me, Daddy, what's beholding, would I be able to answer them? If believing is beholding, it's obviously something that's urgent, yet it's something that's so hard for us to get our hands and and heart and our mouths around, we can't even describe to them, but it's not optional. And we made an attempt of it last week to describe and explain what it means to behold Christ. We took out the word seeing and we put beholding in there because it's antique and it's different. And it's something that should arrest us with something that's different from seeing your friends drive around town, that to behold Christ... Is something different altogether. And this morning, we're moving on to verse 46. They're connected to verse 44 and 45, which is why I've engaged them together. And verse 46 is where we're going to camp today. Jesus says, remember, he's crying out. He says, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. My kids were to ask me, Daddy, why did Jesus come and take on flesh? This is a great place to go. Oftentimes I hear from people that, man, I I have a difficult time sharing my faith because I don't really know where to begin. How about John chapter 12, verse 46? This is the rationale for the gospel. I've come into the world as light 
so that. You know my affection for so that's. If you've been with us for any period of time, you know that so that's mean something, and we should stop at them and say, well, what does that mean? What's it explaining? What's it describing? And Jesus says, I've come into the world as light so that the believing ones, that's the word there in the original language, the participle, the believing ones in me may not remain in darkness. I want to spend the majority of the morning on God's redemptive pattern and drawing from darkness, but first we've got to consider what is darkness. Certainly, as I'm saying that, I know that kids, you might be thinking about, well, that's what my room was last night when mommy and daddy turned the lights out and they said goodnight. Darkness is certainly physical, but it's so much more than that. Otherwise, Christ would just be a flashlight. We know that he's so much more than a flashlight. So what is darkness? First of all, darkness is ignorance. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, on page 978 of your pew Bible. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you, you believers, must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's speaking that reference to unbelievers. We don't walk as unbelievers anymore in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. So in that passage, there's lots of things that are exposed about darkness. It's the ignorance that is in them. It is the alienation from the life of God. The picture there is of darkened minds and the hearts of the unbelieving. Darkness is also a picture of folly. Ecclesiastes describes it as folly. And if you've read the book of Ecclesiastes, you know that's kind of a theme. Everything's folly. Well, darkness in Ecclesiastes is pictured as folly. Darkness is also a picture of falsehood. It's a place where the insincere and the disingenuous can hang out. It's a place where who they really are can be disguised and covered. It's where the father of lies dwells in darkness. Satan. It's where the people of God, we don't live in a disingenuous, untrue place. An insincere place. But we live in a place where light has invaded who we really are and who we can be, how we can be then we can be who we really are. Darkness is ignorance. Darkness is folly. Darkness is falsehood. Darkness is death. From the book of Job, it's described as death. The book of Job, I found really to be kind of a darkness book. It's mentioned 36 times in the book of Job. And some of you retreat to the book of Job when you're in darkness, and it's an appropriate place to go. Job presents death as a darkness. Turn, turn to Psalm 107. We're going to come back to this psalm later in this morning. But I want to show you another glimpse of darkness. Psalm 107, page 506 of your pew Bible. It says, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. And then in verse 14, he brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. 
Darkness is a picture of ignorance, it's a picture of folly, it's a picture of falsehood, it's a picture of death, it's a picture of imprisonment, spiritual and even physical. Matthew, Christ refers to darkness, equates it with hell. A place where disbelievers and unbelievers will be thrown, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of outer darkness. Darkness is also a power. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus presents darkness as a power. When he is betrayed in his final hours, the chief priests come to get him. He says, I've been preaching the temple for weeks, for months, for years. But now your hour, the power of darkness has come. So darkness is presented as a power and a force. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Page 983. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. It says, He has delivered us. This is He speaking of the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And He's transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And there, darkness is presented as a domain, as a realm as a force, as a power, as a presence, as a movement, as an entity. It's ignorance, folly, falsehood, death, imprisonment, hell, a power, and a domain. And Christ came so that the believing ones may not remain in this ignorance, folly, falsehood, death, imprisonment, hell, domain, and darkness. That's why Christ came. And the beauty is, That he's just doing what God has been doing for ages. Christ is doing what God has been doing for the ages. If we could but treat this Old Testament as more than a collection of VeggieTales stories, we could get to know the character of a a Yahweh God, and we get to know how he's related and engaged his people over the ages. And that's what I hope to do in these next few minutes. It's hard work to get to know God's redemptive character. you got to read your Bible. And you don't get it in little bitty snippets. That's why I'm so frustrated because all I've got is some Polaroids. But you need a video. Shepherd, you've got to be reading the Old Testament to your family, among the new, of course. You've got to be reading these stories so we can get to know this guy. So we're going to engage a few of these stories and get to know God's redemptive character so that when we see Christ, we go, well, of course he's God. He's just doing what his father has been doing over the ages. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. That's in the front of your Bibles. I don't have a page number. Page number 1. We're going to have, uh, we're going to look at three or four different things here, and then we're going to look at the ministry of Christ. But I want to begin in God's redemptive pattern. His redemptive character is revealed from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, a passage we're familiar with. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Feel the darkness. Imagine the darkness of complete voidness, formlessness, nothingness, complete darkness. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then look at verse 3, the very first thing that our God did 
God said, let there be light. And there was light. The very first thing that our God did is to speak into formlessness, to speak into voidness and create. His very first movement in creative history speaks light into darkness. He's revealing his redemptive character from the very first words on the very first day. This is how I'm going to operate over the ages, people. As you read it, as you see the stories unfold, you'll see this over and over And over again, as he speaks, he draws substance into formlessness. He draws the furniture of the universe, like gravity, into nothingness. As he speaks, he draws critters that teem in the oceans and in the forest and in the skies. As he speaks, galaxies are hung. And he even speaks a couple of naked innocents from the darkness. Although they're not innocent for long. It's his redemptive character to speak light into darkness. Then there's Abraham. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. Then Abram. He's the father of the Israelites and arguably he is our granddaddy as the new Israel. We don't know a whole lot about him. I, I'm saying we. I'm speaking of me over the, over the years. I, I must confess that I never really got to know this guy very well. But I want you to see how God interacts with this man. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 12, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers, to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant in that darkness. From that darkness, he spoke to Abram. He made a covenant with Abraham saying, To your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Light is spoken into the darkness and a new people are created. Turn to Exodus chapter 10. Fulfilling the passage we just read, that Abram had this vision that he had in this extreme darkness of this people going into slavery. In fact, Israel has been in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And they've been crying out to the Lord. And in Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, there's the ninth of ten plagues where these people are liberated from darkness. And here's the ninth plague. The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. A darkness to be felt. I don't know if I've ever felt darkness that can be felt. As a kid, we'd go on vacation and go to these caves, you know, where they go in there and for a kid, this is a scary thing. They go in there and they turn all the lights out and you hold your hand up to your face and you can't see it. 
You don't know when it's there and when it's not. I felt that darkness, but I don't even think that's even touching the darkness that these guys experienced right here. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. (laughs) That's appropriate. Turn over to chapter 12, verse 29. This is the last plague. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne. Now, this is at midnight. What happens at midnight? It's dark. And who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock and Pharaoh's rose up in the night. There it is again. He and his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Even apart from the physical darkness, I'm going to say there's a symbolic darkness there when every household wakes up and somebody's dead. Dark? Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, almost emphasizing it, and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Israel is rescued from darkness. The darkness of 400 years worth of slavery. The darkness of the plagues. Just in and of themselves, if you study what they are, they're darkness. But then the ninth plague, a darkness that could be felt. And then the tenth plague, a darkness of every household having somebody dead in it. At midnight, God says, come out of her, my people. Come out of darkness. And then just to chapter over, Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. There he is again, just going after it again, being the light, leading his people out, speaking light into darkness and leading his people out that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Light and darkness leading the people from Egypt to the promised land for 40 years. There it is again. His redemptive pattern. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Beginning in verse 9. This is referring back to Sinai. When this people that had been led out from midnight, that had been led out from a darkness that could be felt, when this people that had been led through the darkness of the Passover, here in chapter 4, verse 9, it's referring back to that. He says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven. 
wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. And there he is again, speaking the light of the law, in that case, into darkness. I've learned to treasure this law not as master, but as a tutor that leads me to Christ, for that's what the Scripture tells us. I've learned to treasure this tutor, and this tutor was spoken into darkness. Turn to Psalm 107. I told you we were going to look at that again. Psalm 107. I, we don't know who wrote this psalm. It's likely David. If it wasn't David, it was someone else who was a pretty good student of the history of the people of God and how God had interacted with the people. And however tired you might be, however disconnected you might be in these minutes right now, because you're not accustomed to turning from page to page to page to story to story to story in this book of God, I'm begging you right now to engage this. Listen to this. This writer, the psalmist says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them, and then the Lord, or then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them. From their distress. He led them by a straight way until they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for this steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. If you want to know what beholding looks like, there's a good picture of it. A longing soul, a hungry soul that's seeking him. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts with the hard labor. That's Egypt. He bowed their hearts with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, and he delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, they went down to the depths, their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. They cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. As I'm reading that psalm, I'm sitting there thinking, man, I bet there's some people in here that are like, man, dude, what is this all about? Because we've been conditioned to short little tiny snippets of truth, little data pieces 
that we can't engage and weave together the character of a living God. We can't get to know this big D deliverer, the Psalm 107, because we're too stinking lazy. We've been veggie-tailed to death, so we don't know this Yahweh. This Yahweh is the God we will spend eternity with. This Yahweh, when you get to know Christ in the gospel, that's the same one. Satan has eaten me for lunch the last few days because he said, people won't engage this. It's too hard. I hope somebody will worship today. I hope somebody will engage this truth. Somebody that has been conditioned by data points will put that aside and say, I want to know the character of the living God as deliverer, leading his people out of Egypt, leaving this people out of our little Egypts. Day by day. That's what he's about. That's why Jesus cried out. That's why I'm crying out right now. Jesus had to cry out. They didn't have data points, but I bet they had their little version. How does this work? Is this going to help my marriage? Is this going to help my family? Put it aside. Engage the living God. Enjoy the character of God just for a moment. This is how God engaged his people over the ages. And then Jesus, in keeping with the character of the Father, in the little snippets that we have from the Gospels, we get to know His redemptive character, and then we can go, well, of course He's God. John chapter 9. Don't turn there. Just listen. John chapter 9. Jesus is walking with the disciples. I see a blind man. Disciples are like, hey, Jesus. Uh, who sinned first, this, this blind man or his parents, that he should be born blind? He said, neither of them sinned. Now, of course they sinned. He's saying his, their blindness is not connected to sin. His blindness is about to be an instrument of revelation, an instrument of glory. Watch this. He spits on the ground. He makes some little mud pies with the spit. He puts it on Jesus' eyes. A man that's been blind his whole life, Close your eyes for an hour, for a day, blindfold yourself, and imagine a lifetime of darkness. And Jesus, in keeping with the character of his Father, liberates this man from a lifetime of darkness. A nameless, blind dude, led from darkness with spit and mud pies, and then, of course, a swift kick from the Pharisees out of the synagogue. Jesus is acting just like his father. And then there's John chapter 11. Probably my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. Lazarus is laying four days dead in the tomb. There's the darkness of mourning where Mary and Martha are brokenhearted because they've lost their brother. There's the darkness of what they perceive as betrayal. Jesus, Jesus, I thought you were a friend. If only you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Man, this chapter is so dark. There's the darkness of a bunch of disciples that are thinking, oh, we can't go there, we'll all die. There's the darkness of sickness and death and four days of decay. And our Christ shows up and speaks light into a dark tomb and awakens Lazarus from life, from death. To life. Can you imagine how he must have squinted? You've gone to a movie, spend a couple hours in a movie, and you step outside, you're like, ah, 
Golly, it's bright out. Feeling guilty because you spent the afternoon inside in the darkened theater. Imagine spending four days dead and decaying and being called from death to life. Eyes that moments earlier were gray with death. Eyes that moments earlier were dry and lifeless now pulse and throb with the vision of Christ speaking light into darkness and drawing a new man from darkness. There he is, just like his father. Turn to Mark 15. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's noon, people. Noon to three o'clock. Darkness over the entire land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Could it be any darker? darkness of the cross is the atmosphere where the bulls of Bashan raged. The darkness of three hours, this three hours here, must have been the darkest time in history. The bulls of Bashan raged. A mother mourned. Eleven disciples Immediate disciples. But what have we been doing for three years? We forsook all. Not only have we lost our friend, we lost who we thought was going to liberate us. And save us. Man, that's darkness. That's the same darkness that Peter felt when he said, let's just go fishing. Yet that darkness is the context for a bright, dewy Sunday morning when light invaded darkness. When Christ stepped forth from a tomb and the reason that we won't remain in darkness is because He didn't. He pioneered that journey. He earned it. He led the way. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He's done it with creation. He did it with Abram. He's done it with Israel. He did it with a blind man. 
who's lived his whole life in blindness and darkness. He did it with Lazarus, and he even did it with himself. And here's the crazy scandal of the gospel. Now it's our turn. This is the scandal of the gospel. This is what you tell your friends about. This is what you tell your children about, shepherds. This is why it's urgent. This is why it's a treasure. Because it's our turn. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said... Let there be light. The same God that said, let there be light. That same God has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now it's our turn. The same God that spoke and light just invaded darkness is the same God that has spoken into our lives and into our hearts and drawn us from the darkness of sin and lostness to the light of abundant life with Jesus Christ. First Peter says, For you are a chosen race, a plucked people, a royal... Plucked people is my addition. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. There He is again. It's His redemptive character. One of the things that has been a heartbreak for me as I've prepared this message is as I sit here and think about, man... We're a bunch of squinters. We walk around squinting all the time at the glory of God, the glory of Christ, the glory of this scandalous gospel that we've been drawn from darkness to light. We walk around squinting all the time. So we're a bunch of squinters. We're a bunch of formerly blind dudes jumping around, leaping like a bunch of hooligans. I can see. We're a bunch of Lazari. That's right. We can make up a word. problem is, in walking with a bunch of squinters and a bunch of Lazari and a bunch of people that I cherish as family for the last four years, I know that you and I both still experience darkness. Ecclesiastes 11.7 says, Light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to see. Don't turn there. Listen to this. It says, light is sweet and it's pleasant for the eyes to see. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, in all those bright sunny days. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. The thing that I realized as I considered the disconnect between the fact that we are squinters, that we are formerly blind dudes dancing around, that we're a bunch of Psalm 107 writers, that we're a bunch of Lazari, when I see it on people's faces and I hear it in their the counseling times or the times we're walking together or the times when people will really be genuine and real, and why am I walking in such stinking darkness still? I believe that all this happened. I believe I've been drawn from darkness to light. I believe that I'm a squinting people right along with you. But why am I living in such stinking darkness? The reason being 
If you experience darkness with me periodically, maybe you live there. The reason being is that we are rescued from the domain of darkness to light. It happens all at once, yet in daily measures, like the sun rises daily and makes its way across the sky like the strong man running its course, God shows up as our daily deliverer. God shows up as often as we cry for him to deliver yet again. See, we have our daily Egypts. We have our daily darknesses that could be felt. And still in 2 Corinthians, right there, verse 318, here's the the answer. If you're like, man, dude, I got my daily darknesses. I've got my Egypt. I'm asking that question, why am I living in such darkness still? Yet I know that I'm a squinter. Here's the answer in verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. God shows up as often as we cry for Him to deliver us yet again. And that cry, put an equal sign in your mind, that cry equals beholding. And when a people are beholding, we are transformed from glory to glory. We are drawn from Egypt day by day as the sun goes across the sky as a daily reminder that He's our deliverer. He came not that we would never experience darkness, but that we would not remain in darkness. It's not a matter of if you're going to face it again. It's a matter of when. And just like He was for Egypt, or just like He was for Israel, Just like he was for Abraham, just like he is for us, he is our deliverer. And deliverance is not a one-time thing, it's a journey. Deliverance is a journey. That sounded weird. I I want you to get it. Journey. (laughs) I know I'm saved, I can't understand why my life's such a mess. That's saying that deliverance is not a journey. I am being saved. We are a people of God on a daily journey. A daily journey of deliverance. Deliverance is a journey of developing darkness. And God's people crying out slash beholding. And God in His timing speaking light into darkness and leading His people out. He's not done with delivering you. And He won't be done until you meet Him face to face or until His Son returns. He's not done with delivering you. He has come so that the beholding and believing ones may not remain in darkness. My extreme burden for this message this morning has been that we would be able to interpret darkness, that we wouldn't surprise us, I'm in Egypt. I can't believe it. Well, no, duh. I'm in Egypt again so he can be deliverer again. That you would be able to interpret darkness and that you would look for slash rage after slash call to slash behold the only true deliverer with me. That's been my burden. Whenever you see God's 
redemptive pattern of drawing his people out of darkness. Then you see it with Lot, who was led out of Sodom at sunrise. (laughs) You see it with Noah. While it doesn't say it there, imagine living for a year inside of a ship, a boat, with elephants. Can you imagine what that smelled like? With Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their wives? Man, I spent a couple days with in-laws, and I'm done. (laughs) I'm joking. I love my in-laws. The darkness of being in that ark for a year, and then stepping out into a beautiful day as a remnant, is saved. And when you read about David, David saying that God was his light, he described him as his light leading him out of darkness as he's saved from Saul's hand. When you start to see those things, we go, well, that's, that's about like God. And then whenever you sing the Christmas carols and you think about the night sky being filled and heralded with the, the heralding of Christ, the good news of Christ, a dark Bethlehem night sky where good news is sung into it, you're like, well, there he is again. It's all over the pages of our Bible. And then you can appreciate passages They help us to understand that when Christ returns at the end of the age, that out of the tribulation of darkness, or the darkness of the tribulation, seven years of tribulation, Christ will return and say, come out of her, my people. (laughs) Come out of darkness, my people. My burden for this morning has been that we together would enjoy the godness of Christ. And that we would enjoy together God's redemptive pattern. And that we would look for it in our lives and that we would worship when we see it. There is no thought more wonderful. No conversation richer. No pursuit purer or more blessed than one on and after the person of Jesus Christ. The character of God and His glory in the gospel. Let me pray. Lord, I just... I beg You to piece together some Polaroids. Give us just a glimpse of glory. Lord, we beg you, these riches of your work over the ages, this pattern of you redeeming your people from Babylon, from Sodom, from the world in the flood, that we'll see ownership in that and we'll see your hand, your fingerprints, your DNA all over the gospel and we'll see this Christ as so God. And that as a result, that shepherds will see that it's not duty to speak about Christ at home, but it will be privilege. But how can we be silent? That we'll see it not as duty to share the, the lame old gospel with our friends, but we, how could we possibly be keep, how could we keep silent? Lord, I beg you to well this up within us to where we are a out loud worshiping people that are enjoying your hand and your work and your plan over the ages and the fulfillment of all of it in the person and work of Christ. 
Lord, we thank you for that Sunday morning where light invaded darkness. And it's because of that Sunday morning that we approach you boldly right now and enjoy you together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's worship. Scott, where are you? Okay. We're going right into um, the Lord's Supper, aren't we? Okay. Let me, if I can have the elders come up. Let me, let me share something before you go there, Scott. Um, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? Where may I eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have, this is Jesus speaking, I have earnestly desired, that's the same word that's translated as lust elsewhere in our Bibles. I have earnestly desired, almost like a lust. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.